The comments within the following podcast are those of any show hosts and not representative of any company in which the show hosts may represent. Welcome everybody to the technology blog and podcast. I am so glad to be back. This podcast has been in development for a time and I am so happy to end the recording process and get this podcast out to each and every one of you. I hope that you all will enjoy the program as much as I have putting it together for you and I've got quite a bit for you that I thought would be of interest in a wide variety of stuff today. Have we learned anything in regards to podcast number 267? I'm wondering that as the first segment on this particular podcast talks about a story of somebody who got kicked off of a telephone line and you won't believe the story that I'm going to give you and of course the name of the phone line and the actual name of the person is omitted but a story that you'll want to hear just the same teaching time two very interesting stories and it is definitely related it's a short piece but somebody had a question that actually was with me at the time and I turned it into a podcast piece and I record it right there with them with me phishing report social media taking over email it was an article and we are going to link to the article in our show notes the rapid growth of the internet really what internet are we talking about here this TED talk and I'll link to the video is the Chinese internet we discuss innocent conversations and Michael in Indiana is talking about full world activity that could be over the internet in fact a lot of breaches start the same way as a lot of innocent phone conversations hey give me your password I want to help you do this but the person that has your password ends up doing more things and could get your box deleted it's all talked about and finally contact information at the end the podcast is going to last you over an hour long I hope that each and every one of you enjoys the podcast as much as I have 
We'll be back with another edition of the podcast very soon, but for now, let's get started with this one. I'm Jared Reimer. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to podcast number 284. I don't think people learned from podcast 267, did they? This time, I've got a story that I want to tell you that got them actually kicked off of a phone line. What phone line? It doesn't matter, but follow the following story. You're in a conference or somebody posts a message on a bulletin board. And they're talking about things that they're interested in. And let's say that the system in question had a premium service. Well, this particular individual in question goes and tells the entire conference that they tried to sign up for the premium service on the telephone line that was priced and given out to everyone who goes to look for it. And he used a credit card that was two things wrong. First, didn't belong to him, and that's not the biggest problem. People pay for things for people all the time, I'm sure. But the other aspect is that this was a credit card that didn't have money on it or had been reported lost stolen. So the person couldn't use the card anyway. Basically, this guy in question admitted to using other people's credit cards to make purchases. In front of a conference of at least five or six people. Now, this is, this is becoming a problem. In podcast 267, segment one, we talked about somebody who decided to give out their information and I was able to look up that information based on the place where they lived and I was able to pull up their name at least the name of the place 
the address and the phone number of that particular place because they're publicly listed. Now, can you imagine having knowledge that somebody is out there using other people's credit card information to make day-to-day purchases? The person in question was reported to the line owner with the recordings indicating that he tried to do this. Now, here's what's interesting. I paid attention to a particular name tag that this guy had. And let's just say that he asked me to be his friend on another line. And I went back to somebody and said, Hey, I know this name. And I'm pretty sure it's the guy that we had just kicked off of this line. And he goes, why? I said, because this person is going by this name. And I said, I'm not going to tell you guys how to run the line, but I think it's the same person. And he tried to tell me it wasn't. But after further investigation, I was right. The information was sent over to the line owner, and he was removed again. One question's all it was. Aren't you the one that talked about... Yep. Now, this guy... Uh, was... An independent artist, and I say was because the band doesn't exist anymore. Apparently, that's what he's telling me. He was asked why he didn't use the same box number, because anyone on one system has to use the same box number on another. And he said that his hands screwed up, and... So he took that box. Well, that didn't matter because once the investigation turned out that it was the same guy that wanted to use other people's credit card information, the line owner definitely does not want people using other people's credit cards without the other person's consent. And I'm sure that The line owner tried to run the card and the card was declined. And he was sent a message and there was nothing he could do. Now if I was going to do it, I would ask somebody, hey, would you like to pay for this service for me? And I 
would log them into my box and I would let them identify themselves through the platform as the biller. I would not be the one to do it. That's how I would do it. The aspect of this particular gentleman talking about other subjects with people that they were not comfortable with was not the main aspect of why he got deleted from this platform. And it strikes me interesting that somebody would go around telling a bunch of people that they used other people's personal information and credit card information to get what they need. And this is quite interesting because think about it. You as a subscriber of this line or any other line are going about your day-to-day activities and you get a charge on your bill. You don't know what this is so you call and you find out what this is. And you tell the provider, look, I didn't sign up for it. And in most cases, the provider will in most cases refund the money and discontinue the service. But what happened to me was that the provider did not refund my money, but they did cancel the service. And I ended up having to get a new card. Now, if there's an agreement between two of you, there is no fraud. It's not considered fraud. It's it's based on a verbal agreement that you have made with the uh, party in question. But in this case, this guy and others went about it the wrong way. And the provider recognized something wasn't right and sent a message. Now, if I got this all wrong, picture that scenario. The exact details aren't important, but it seems to me that if you do stuff like this online, you're going to do it over the phone, and the only way that you are going to get stopped is if you are caught. And that is very sad. Why are we 
in a society where we have to worry about other people using our information. I don't get it. I don't get why people think that they can get away with it. And unless something goes wrong, they go about doing it. You know, if I got in trouble for something legally and I didn't learn, then whatever happens to me in life will happen to me. Now we hear about all these breaches and we hear about various aspects of people finally getting caught because it takes a long time to find out who did it and what happened. But it doesn't matter some three, four years later because sometimes the law will give them a slap on the wrist. Here, we'll give you uh, three years jail. But when you commit credit card fraud... The credit card companies eat up that cost. And unless it's significant enough, there's really no investigation. I've talked about my incidences in the past. And it doesn't matter here, but it goes into saying that it seems as though people aren't going to quit even though they know or maybe not know or not care that it's wrong. And wouldn't you know that this guy talked about how he did things online and used other people's information. Not knowing that I read up about things like this. And I'm aware of what happens. And all I could say is he needed to be careful. And he got turned into the line owner and the line owner said we're not tolerating this. And he almost got past uh, the approval process entirely. But there's always a watchful eye. A watchful eye watching for things that look too familiar. And one of them was a name. Think about it. Leave your thoughts, comments, and, and of course, if I'm wrong, let me know because I bet you this is happening all the time.
and we only are scratching the surface of this problem. Alright folks, welcome back to Podcast 284. So it's teaching time because this is going to be quite interesting with two stories that are similar in nature. One was received in a question of, have we been hacked? And the other one was, I received a file. And the file in question was sent to me as a password protected file. And while I understand the particular questions, I don't see why I couldn't talk about both. And this is honestly something that is of concern because new people are always coming on the internet. And so the fact of the matter is that this is going to be an ongoing problem. And this leads to an article that I also will talk about a little bit later on in regards to the phishing trends, but we'll leave that for another segment. So somebody contacted me and said, hey, uh, take a look at this email and let me know if we've been hacked. So the email said that it was sent from the person at the domain specified that is run through my network. And all of a sudden, the person is responding and said, yeah, how, how should I pay for this? Not thinking of a couple of aspects. The first is, how did they sign their email? Did they sign it with their na their full name? Or did they sign it with a shortened version of the, of the full name? Now, for ease of simplicity, if your name is Suzanne or Susan, you either would sign your name Sue or Susan, S-U-S-A-N. Um or any other combination of Suzanne. And sometimes if in the professional field you sign your full name and you have a full signature with the company email address and phone number and website and so forth. So how does that work? Well, most particular things are of importance. First is the way that somebody writes, whether it's a short friendly email where spelling doesn't matter or the professional email where spelling actually counts. Next would be the signature. And if you're sent the file attachment, are you aware of the particular way that files are sent? Do they tell you what the files are? In the particular payment, most of the time payments are done over the phone or over the internet through a secure channel 
most of the time you do not send your payment information over email and so when it says pay this bill um, or you owe me you know you ought to be suspicious um, I would be getting on the phone and asking questions next let's cover the uh, uh, attachment aspect where somebody was notifying me that they received a password protected PDF but they had done everything they needed to do that their employer asked and they just received a password protected PDF first of all in those emails you would receive the password in that email and second of all if you ran it the file could be laced with malware and so that is a big time problem that I would be concerned about and so how do you do that well you check with your employer hey employer how do we get notified of attachments and do you send it this way if the answer is no if you received a password protected file be leery of that aspect of that because it could be a sign of compromise and since you could bring your own device you don't necessarily have to have a company issued device although companies still issue devices uh, you don't necessarily have to but you would have to check with your employer first so this person asked me look I just received this password protected PDF well my first question was well what do you expect do you expect it to be password protected no I open it and I can read it well that's the first sign of compromise what type of things have you seen that you would like to share send me an email my email address is tech t-e-c-h at m-e-n-v-i dot org coming up next we're going to talk about an article in regards to fishing trends how they could possibly change that coming up next <laughs> So there was an article and it's an interesting one fishing and social media will it overtake email it was posted on the 7th of August and it got me to thinking a little bit about some things and I'm gonna link to the article on the show notes and for the foreseeable future email is not gonna go away in fact it's only part of the problem according to the report and according to the article it's steadily growing it's not really evading 
We don't know exactly when it will plateau. I believe email will always have a place because there are still new people coming on the internet all the time. So, I honestly don't think it'll ever go away completely, in my opinion. According to the Fish Labs intelligence report, they have a little more insight. According to this report, attacks have tripled in social media. But again, they stress that email is not going away anytime soon. You could say that the following scenario might be true as part of a potential phishing attack. Hey, I want to be your boyfriend, girlfriend. But for me to call you, I need you to send me X amount of dollars in any type of gift card you can send me. I hope that you can help me out. And in communicating with them, they said, well, I'm in this country, meaning outside the United States, and I got to find an anonymous way to call you because I'm in this situation. Now, the situation and the country are eliminated from this story because this could happen to anybody. And I'm like, look, if you are employed by this agency, they should be able to pay for you to be able to get what your needs are. And they said, well, you need to give it to me. Well, no, I barely know you. And I'm not going to do that. And this is over. And... Everybody I've talked to said that I that I did the right thing. It's not normal for somebody who you barely know to start asking you for money if they want to have a relationship with you. Now, if it's a business dealing, that's different. And you do it securely, not just handing out the information. Sure, if you're on the phone, you hope that is secure and you're taking your chance. And in most cases... They will process your payment over the phone, and you're done. But they wanted me to send, call it 50 or or $100 in gift cards so they can call me and get a better phone? An iTunes gift card won't get you a phone, and you cannot cash them out. And they're back now. They actually started contacting me again. And there, I told them again, this is not, you know, I am still not able to send you any cards. And I am not interested. Well, they're like, well, I want to send you this. I want to send you sexy pictures. And I need the, the card to do that. No, you don't. You need a telephone. 
what I need isn't a picture. Okay? There's something more than a picture that I could use. And while that's not for this podcast, it's to prove a point here. That if you want to send anybody pictures of any type, it is your responsibility to go ahead and get that yourself. Now, if you're in a relationship and your significant other buys you something, they've already known you and they know what you're going to do. But I'm still very suspicious. And the person's name and identity and so forth have been omitted. But to me, this sounds like a scam. And I could smell right through it. Here, send me a gift card so I can send so I can communicate with you. What? Now, this has nothing to do with the article. But, you know, these types of phishing types of thing here, send me money and I'll be able to get this. Or You know, I bet you if I sent them 50 or or $100 in gift cards, that they would come back and ask me for more. It's not phishing per se, but it's social engineering for money in a denomination other than cash. And so I gave them my email address to communicate with me through Hangouts. Okay, I don't care. It's an email address. What are they going to do? Try and hack my account? I've already got two-factor on. Why do I care? If my if Google calls me and I'm not trying to log in, I know there's a problem and I'll go change my password. I've been lucky there. The fact is is that the, uh, there's an, an a, a growing problem and whether it's phishing or otherwise we need to know about it and nowadays social media is the biggest thing are you on Facebook are you on LinkedIn are you on whatsapp tunnel bear anything? Why does it matter what I'm on? I have a public telephone number you can use to call me. It is not my responsibility to give you any type of assistance to help pay for that call. If I call you, I can't ask you for that. And there's trust on social media. So, what I told this person was on Twitter... Hey, you go get this app and you can have instant um, communication with me at no charge. You can call. It's not going to cost you anything but data. And it's anonymous because you don't, you know, it's tied to your phone, but there's no phone number. Now, if they got WhatsApp, they can call me through WhatsApp. And uh, that phone number would come through, yes, but then I could call at no cost because it's a WhatsApp to WhatsApp call. 
30% in the U.S. and 41% globally trust social media and their data. Now, I'm not posting anything that could get me into trouble. Maybe I posted once and I said something. I was like, I didn't mean to send that. I want. I tried to get it as a DM. And somebody saw it and said something to me. So what? Not everybody said anything and it didn't matter. And this is from a UK-based study. And you can read more about it later on. Their respondents say that 40% trust social media. And 53% email. Brands, financial institutions, and a whole lot more are a big deal. I trust Google and Hangouts. But you have to then trust the people behind it. And the only way to do that is to use your brain. Why is this person asking me for money? Why are they saying that my account has an issue when I just used it yesterday? You know, uh, when I log into this account, it says I don't have a problem. I was just in there, and there is no problem. So I shouldn't click on a link saying this. Oh, why did I get an email saying that the shipping parcel wasn't delivered? I'm not expecting. It's all forms of either social engineering or phishing to get you to open a document, click on a link, press enter on a link, or anything else to get you to run pieces of software or look at things that you don't want to look at. And part of this article, and the reason why I brought this whole scenario up about this person asking me for money, even though it was a gift card, is this very scenario A in there. You get an email from a friend, but from an unknown address, asking for 20 bucks. In uh, scenario B, you get an instant message on a social media platform from a friend you are connected with. They strike up a conversation and they could use some money. Bingo! That's why I brought this up. I thought about it and thought about how to talk about this without giving away every little piece of this article. That's exactly what it is. A new friend that wanted to be a girlfriend of mine asked me for money, even in, a, in either iTunes or Amazon or any gift card that I could afford. Whoops! I already knew that's a problem. I don't know who she is very well. She told me she's in this country doing this work, and she can move anywhere but wants to find somebody. Well, first of all, if you move somewhere, then you have the money. I'm sorry. I'm not going to buy you uh, a gift card so you can go find another phone so you can send me pictures. You have the money to move, 
So if you have the money to move, then you have the money to go buy a phone. While I initially started on Twitter, I gave them my email address. Yes. But then they started asking me for money. Yes, I trust the platform to be secure and that the conversation isn't going to get out, but that doesn't mean that I trust the person. Identity theft, according to the article, can be a problem. And that's another reason why I didn't send it, because even if I did, my iTunes account is, is connected to a different address. That could give them information into my network. I don't think this particular thing was a phishing attack or, or social engineering. Just a, a, somebody wanting money, you know, out of any possible person they can because that's the only way they get money. And I didn't fall for it. Uh, and yes, they followed me on Twitter first. Yes, I gave them my, my Gmail address to connect to me on Hangouts because they wanted a secure way to connect. Social media volumes have increased 200%. And there is also compromised email accounts, stolen social media accounts, which could facilitate cybercrime and more. I'm not going to cover every little aspect of the article. You can go to info.fishlabs.com slash blog. That's info.phishlabs.com slash blog and read about it. They've also got RSS feeds and a whole lot more, so you can read it in your RSS reader like I do. And this is something that can be a big time problem. And I knew that I wasn't going to send money to somebody when I just met them through Twitter. Absolutely not. I smell a scam and when they reconnected with me, I said, I am still not sending you money. It's like, well, I want to send you sexy pics. Well, no. I specifically told them what I wanted and what would suit me better because I can't see. I'm not, I'm not stupid here. And there are people that would just send these things and not think about it twice. And people like that would run. Then they try and figure out, oh, I got their email address. Let's see what else I can do. They can try and get into my Gmail. I don't have anything of value there. What are your thoughts? You have comments, uh, suggestions on, on how we could better uh, handle things like this? I'm curious on your thoughts. You can email me at tech, that's T-E-C-H, at M-E-N-V-I dot O-R-G.
You can text or WhatsApp 804-442-6975. Coming up next, a very interesting TED, uh, TED, uh, TED Talk. The rapid growth of the Chinese internet and where it's headed. A TED Talk by Gary Yu. I'm curious on your thoughts. The podcast continues with this TED Talk. This is Podcast 284. I am Jared Reimer. Once every 12 months, the world's largest human migration happens in China. Over the 40-day travel period of Chinese New Year, three billion trips are taken as families reunite and celebrate. Now, the most strenuous of these trips are taken by the country's 290 million migrant workers, for many of whom this is the one chance a year to go home and see parents and their left-behind children. But their travel options are very limited. Plane tickets cost nearly half of their monthly salary. So most of them, they choose the train. Their average journey is 700 kilometers. Their average travel time is 15 and a half hours. And the country's tracks now have to handle 390 million travelers every spring festival. Until recently, migrant workers would have to queue for long hours, sometimes days, just to buy tickets often only to be fleeced by scalpers. And they still had to deal with near-stampede conditions when travel day finally arrived. But technology has started to ease this experience. Mobile and digital tickets now account for 70 percent of sales, greatly reducing the lines at train stations. Digital ID scanners have replaced manual checks, expediting the boarding process. And artificial intelligence is deployed across the network to optimize travel routes. New solutions have been invented. China's largest taxi-hailing platform, it's called Didi Chuxing, launched a new service called Hitch, which matches car owners who are driving home with passengers looking for long-distance routes. In just its third year, Hitch served 30 million trips in this past holiday season, the longest of which was further than 1,500 miles. That's about the distance from Miami to Boston. This enormous need of migrant workers has powered fast upgrade and innovation across the country's transport systems. Now, the Chinese internet it has developed in both familiar and unfamiliar ways. Just like in Silicon Valley, some of the seismic shifts in technology and consumer behavior have been driven by academic uh, research, have been driven by enterprise desires, with the whims of privilege and use sprinkled in every once in a while. I am a product of the American tech industry both as a consumer and a corporate leader, so I am well acquainted with this type of fuel. But about a year and a half ago, I moved from my home in New York City to Hong Kong to become the CEO of the South China Morning Post. And from this new vantage point, I've observed something that is far less familiar to me, propelling so much of China's innovation and many of its entrepreneurs. It is an overwhelming need economy that is serving uh, an underprivileged populace which has been separated for 30 years from China's economic boom. The stark gaps that exist between the rich and the poor, between urban and rural, or the academic and the unschooled, these gaps, they, they form a soil uh, that's ready for some incredible empowerment 
So when capital and investment become focused on the needs of people who are hanging to the bottom runs of an economic ladder, that's when we start to see the internet truly become a job creator, an education enabler, and in many other ways, a path forward. Of course, China is not the only place where this alternative fuel exists, nor the only place where it is possible. But because of the country's sheer scale and status as a rising superpower, the needs of its population have created an opportunity for truly compelling impact. When explaining the rapid growth of the Chinese tech industry, many observers will cite two reasons. The first is the 1.4 billion people that call China home. The second. Is the government's active participation or pervasive intervention, depending on how you view it? Now, the central authorities have spent heavily on network infrastructure over the years, creating an attractive environment for investment. At the same time, they've insisted on standards and regulation, which has led to fast consensus and therefore fast adoption. The world's largest pool of tech talent exists because of the abundance of educational incentives, and local domestic companies. In the past, have been protected from international competition by market controls. Of course, you cannot observe the Chinese internet without finding widespread censorship and very serious concerns about dystopian monitoring. As an example, China is in the process of rolling out a social credit rating that will cover its entire population, rewarding and restricting citizens based on highly qualitative characteristics like honesty and integrity. At the same time. China is deploying facial recognition across many of its 170 million closed-circuit cameras. Artificial intelligence is being used to predict crime and terrorism in Xinjiang province, where the Muslim minority is already under constant surveillance. Yet the internet has continued to grow, and it is so big, much bigger than I think most of us realize. By the end of 2017, the Chinese internet population had reached 772 million users. That's larger than the populations of the United States, of Russia, of Germany, of the United Kingdom, of France, and Canada combined. 98% of them are active on mobile. 92% of them use messaging apps. There are now 650 million digital news consumers, 580 million digital video consumers, and the country's largest e-commerce platform, Taobao. Now boasts 580 million monthly active users. It's about 80% larger than Amazon. On-demand travel, between bikes and cars, now account for 10 billion trips a year in China. That's two-thirds of all trips taken around the world. So it's a very mixed bag. The internet exists in a restricted, arguably manipulated form within China, yet it is massive and has vastly improved the lives of its citizens. So even in its imperfection, the growth of the Chinese internet should not be dismissed, and it's worthy of our closer examination. Let me tell you two other stories today. Luo Zhaoliu is a 34-year-old engineer from Jiangxi Province. Now his home region used to be extremely important to the Communist Party because this was the birthplace of the Red Army. But over the decades, because of its separation from the economic and manufacturing centers of the country, it has slid into irrelevance. Luo, like so many in his generation, left home at a young age to look for work in a major city. He ended up in Shenzhen, which is one of China's tech hubs. As the young migrate, these rural villages are left with only elderly who are really struggling to elevate themselves above abject poverty. After nine years, 
Lord decided to return to Jiangxi in 2017 because he believed that the booming e-commerce marketplace in China could help him revive his village. Like many rural communities, Luo's home specialized in a very specific provincial craft, making fermented bean curd in this case. So he started a small factory and started selling his locally made goods online. It's been many years of consumption growth across China's major cities, but recently technology has been driving an explosion in craft goods sales among China's middle and upper classes. WeChat and other e-commerce platforms allow rural producers to market and sell their goods. Far beyond their original distribution areas, research companies actually track this impact by counting what is called Taobao villages. This is any rural village where at least 10% of its households are selling goods online and make a certain amount of revenue. And the growth has been significant in the last few years. There were just 20 Taobao villages in 2013, 212 in 2014, 780 in 2016, 2015. 1,326 and over 2,100 at the end of 2017. They now account for nearly half a million active online stores, 19 billion dollars in annual sales, and 1.3 million new jobs created. In Lo's first year back home, he was able to employ 15 villagers, and he sold about 60,000 units of fermented bean curd. He expects to hire 30 more people in the next year, as his demand rapidly rises. There are 60 million left-behind children scattered across China's rural landscape, and they grow up with at least one parent far away from home as a migrant worker. Alongside of the general hardships of rural life, they often have to travel vast and dangerous distances just to get to school. They account for 30% of the country's primary and high school students. Ten-year-old Tang Wenxuan is one of these students. He walks an hour each way every single day to school. Across these deep ravines in an isolated landscape, but when he arrives at the small farming village in Gansu Province, he will find just two other students at his entire school. Now, Tang's school is one of a thousand in Gansu alone that has less than five registered students. So, with limited student interaction, with underqualified teachers, and schoolhouses that are barely furnished and not insulated, rural students. Have long been disadvantaged, with almost no path to higher education. But Tang's future has been dramatically shifted with the installation of a sunshine classroom. He's now part of a digital classroom of 100 students across 28 different schools, taught by qualified and certified teachers, live streaming from hundreds of miles away. He has access to new subjects like music and art, to new friends, and to experiences that extend far beyond his home. Recently, Tang even got to visit the Fredericksburg Castle Museum in Denmark, virtually, of course. Now, online education has existed for many years outside of China, but it has never reached truly transformative scale, likely because traditional education systems and other tech centers of the world are far more advanced and far more stable. But China's extreme terrain and size have created an enormous and immediate need for innovation. There's a tech startup in Shenzhen that grew to 300,000 students in just one year, and by our best estimation at the Post, there are now 55 million rural students across China that are addressable and accessible by live streaming classes. This market of need is larger than the entire U.S. student population between kindergarten and grade 12. So I'm extremely encouraged to find out that private investment 
in edtech in China now exceeds one billion dollars a year, with another 30 billion dollars in public funding that is committed between now and 2020. As the Chinese internet continues to grow, even in its imperfection and restrictions and controls, the lives of its once forgotten populations have been irrevocably elevated. There is a focus on populations of need, not of want, that has driven a lot of the curiosity, the creativity, and the development that we see. And there's still more to come. In America, internet population or penetration has now reached 88 percent. In China, the internet has still only reached 56 percent of the populace. That means there are over 600 million people who are still offline and disconnected. That's nearly twice the U.S. population. An enormous opportunity. Wherever this alternative fuel exists, be it in China or Africa, Southeast Asia, or the American heartland, we should endeavor to follow it with capital and with effort, driving both economic and societal impact all over the world. Just imagine for a minute what more could be possible if the global needs of the underserved become the primary focus of our inventions. Thank you. I've been having some discussions with various people, and one of them actually was on this podcast way back on podcast two twelve, and I believe two thirteen, when we talked about Fillmore Productions. And this segment set is not specific on Fillmore Productions. But he is going to make an appearance on this podcast because the discussion that I am bringing up today is talking about people in general and what they put out on the phone lines, and we all know that sharing and social media is what. These platforms want you to do, and there is some aspect of this that everybody does, right? So I have played with Yelp's. Check-in, and there are various types of other apps out there that allow you to check in at various places, and if you do it enough, you get a a particular badge, or you get a perk. Such as a discount or anything else, and that happened to me when I checked in, and that's all well and good. Uh, now some people actually will use these services. 
to go ahead and share every single thing. And every location they're at, including their home. But if you've been on the phone lines, this is taken to a whole nother ball game. And I heard a conversation, for example. that sort of was innocuous but when you look at it could you think that it would have an overall reaching effect on how you do things in life. It talked about how two people got their credit cards mixed up because they were going to pay for dinner and they could identify their credit card one way and something didn't look right and the other person said that that was theirs and I'm like waking up because I had put the line on all night for credits because of the game that's played um so Uh, what happened was that I didn't say anything. And it was an innocent conversation. Innocent. I mean, no personal information was given out except that we went out to eat and I thought I lost my credit card. Well, okay. But somebody who had malicious intent could take that innocent conversation and try and trick them into divulging that information. Right? And there are those types of people in the phone world. I mean, just look at my story way back in 2008 on Podcast 62, where I did nothing wrong. And I'm sitting there going... You know, if the right person came along and was able to trick this person, 
into doing something that they weren't sure if they were even supposed to do, that could get them into a lot of trouble just by a simple conversation. And I look at it this way. Would you tell somebody in a public room that you almost lost your credit card because uh, you had it mixed up with somebody else who happened to be there and you go to pay for the meal and you, right, you get the picture. Here is Michael in Indiana now as he talks about some of the things that he has had to deal with when helping assist a line. And I'm using it as, a, as something to think about. You guys think about this now. And those of you who are on the internet and listen to this, if you've ever called into the phone lines of various sorts, and you may have phone lines similar to what we do in the States, you have people that run your telephone systems and things, if you do, and you've called into them, I am curious about how you have handled situations where somebody either gave out too much info, like, I almost lost my credit card, I went to pay for it at this restaurant, which is an innocent conversation, mind you. But to the unsuspecting eye, if somebody was malicious, they could get you to do a whole lot more. And that is why I'm putting it as a thought piece. I'm not going to tell people what they can and can't talk about. They have every right to talk about what they talked about there. It's a public place. That particular place where I heard it was a public place. People are allowed to go in there without being invited. But what would have happened if that innocent conversation turned out to be given to somebody like the story you heard in podcast 62 way back when it's just something to think about here is Michael in Indiana so one of the most common phone world issues when it comes to what Jared's talking about here um, the, the most the most common problem and it's happened to me uh, and in other cases, I've just heard of it. Um, people who, while they may obtain the information 
uh, in good faith, uh, such as they may be a friend and they have a certain person's phone number, and then some other maybe less credible, less, uh, you know, kind person uh, is able to uh, talk, you know, the other person into giving them whatever information they've got. Um, Or you have cases of people who, um, I see this more times than I than I want to remember, uh, and I've definitely seen it since I've helped operate over here. Um, people who get deleted for from the system for some reason or another, and they go around asking friends for their codes, their boxes, and then they get into their boxes and end up getting them deleted. And then what ends up happening is the person getting deleted said, comes and says, well, I don't know why my boss got deleted. I didn't do nothing. And then it's said that this is what happened or that's what happened. And Oh, well, I gave this person my code. Maybe they did it. And I see that more times than I want to remember. And so, you know, these are the kind of people who, if they can get people's phone codes out of them for phone systems, if they get on the internet and they have access to tools that exist on the internet, if they're breaking into people's boxes on phone systems, that's just the beginning. Um, or there might be cases where someone, um, you know, I've heard of cases where someone says, hey, can you do me a favor? I need to, you know, buy this, uh, you know, I don't know. I I need to buy this battery because my phone battery is dead. And, uh, you know, I need a new battery. And one person says to them, well, okay, tell you what, I'll give you my card number. You do this, go buy this battery, and you'll be good to go. And the person who needs the battery says, thank you very much. Uh, And then they either, A, don't buy the battery and they do something else with the card, or B, they do buy the battery, as they said, but then they hold on to that information and they then decide later, oh, well, I need or I want this, so I'm just going to use this card. And, you know, that is a big part of how stuff like that happens, and it happens all too often. Um, I've heard of cases where, you know, people are friends, and, um, you know, they might need a little help in some case for some reason, and, and uh, you know, this person says, okay, I'll, I'll uh, help you out, and then, you know, later that person, you know, misuses what they were trusted with. Um definitely goes to show that in the phone world, on the phone systems, in a lot of cases, um, you cannot trust people in some cases. Now, there are definitely cases where you can, and I have a small group of 
people that I've been friends with for a while on the phone systems. You know, they have my phone number and such, but uh, I know they'd never uh, disperse it. <clears throat> but there was one person who I was friends with, or so I thought, and they went behind my back and gave out my phone number. Uh, let that be a lesson not to give out your phone number. And another thing that you don't want to do is let people from the phone world onto your Facebook page. Because um, that happened to me. I let someone on my page, and I did not realize that my phone number was showing up on my Facebook page. That person then obtained my number and harassed me and, uh, you know, gave it out to people, and I got other harassing phone calls. Um, you know, I had some trouble with that for a while. So, in today's world, we have to be extremely careful of what we do. Um, definitely. So, there you go. Uh, I'm going to post a similar message on the Livewire version of this uh, board. And so... There you go. Thank you very much, Michael in Indiana, for your insightfulness in regards to the phone world and what's happening on the internet. I really enjoyed listening to your message in regards to what you had to say, especially what it had to be coming from somebody who has helped out running a system that a lot of people may or may not like you for whatever reason. And this podcast was also uploaded to a line that he actually ran. So this is this is coming from experience that he has with dealing with various types of people in a, a setting that is and can be hostile. And I really think that what he had to say really holds true. You know, I brought this up at a conference and, and other people's like, you know, I have been asked for this and I told them no. And I said, why did you tell them no? What was your thinking behind it? Well, because I don't trust them well that's a good reason um and another reason is that they didn't want to get deleted because one of the rules that is stipulated that they tell you on phone lines not to give out your password but they can't stop you from it but they can do something about it if the person in question does something to get the box deleted whatever that rule might be and this could be translated over the internet to where 
somebody can get deleted from a service by posting something that is questionable whether it's illegal or defamatory or anything else you know all you have to do on on an internet service is report something as inappropriate or report a spam is usually what it is and it gets sent over to a team that looks at it and can make a determination of what to do and if it's bad enough and they feel that the account in question should be deleted they'll delete it and so the actions that a lot of people are making out on the phone lines can be translated over to the internet side and that's what I'm sort of trying to bring up here. Michael in Indiana had some very great thoughts. And I think that we should continue the conversation. And the only way we can do that is to leave the communication lines open and allow people to voice their thoughts. And, of course, we can disagree. If somebody wrote, well, I think it's a good idea to uh, share passwords, and here's why, and you can put this on the podcast, and they tell me you know, that it's okay. You can write, you can voice message, whatever. And that information's coming up in a little bit. But if you give me a reason why and you want me to put it up, I'll put it up. And I'll listen to it very carefully. And maybe I'll have something to say about it. And if I do, I will be cordial. I might tell you why it's not a good idea, why I disagree. And let's have this type of discussion because how these breaches and how these types of, of things happen start with access. That access is either with a password, a fingerprint, um, an email address or username depending on the service. So it is all right there. And you are welcome to tell me why it would be a good idea to share such information, whether it starts on the phone lines or it starts on the internet. Let's wrap this podcast up, everybody. It has been a while. This podcast had been really thought out. And 
there was some discussion taking place in regards to the whole ordeal of, you know, what is happening on the phone lines? You know, how can we translate this into uh, the uh, internet aspect of things? And how it is related in today's landscape. The last podcast was the 30th of July. And we're almost on the month mark, but this podcast really took shape. And we really had long discussions on what is happening and can it be transcribed in ways where if somebody was going to transcribe a podcast like this one, you know, can we learn something and have it in text form? And I've invited people out and one person submitted and it was very well done. And I'm always looking for more. So to recap what we've talked about. A discussion in regards to whether we've learned anything from one of our prior podcasts. It was podcast 267 done last year where somebody gave out enough personal information to... have us know exactly where they live and the phone number to the agency or or the place that they live. Two interesting related stories and, uh, and it was teaching time for segment two. An article, Fishing Report, Social media taking over email and this whole change of social media. The rapid the rapid growth of the Chinese internet, a TED talk I actually found of interest in Got some comments on while I was listening to that live. Discussing innocent conversations in Michael in Indiana talking about the whole ordeal of uh, giving out information that you probably should not be. And finally, my comments in regards to what Michael has to say. I I posted the initial comments on my tech board over on Livewire and Ground Zero and Michael posted 
messages on sim on both systems but i took the one from ground zero because it was more related to what i was wanting to do we're gonna link to the fishing and social media article in the show notes as well as a link to the ted talk video my email and iMessage addresses are tech, that's T-E-C-H, at M-E-N-V-I dot O-R-G. WhatsApp text message is 804-442-6975, and you're welcome to call that phone number too. You can also find me on social media. My website is jaredreimer.net. That's J-A-R-E-D-R-I-M-E-R.net. I hope that you will enjoy the program. You have enjoyed the program, and I will be back with another edition of this program very soon. Until then, thank you so much for listening.